Welcome to the Redeemer Podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. Thanks for joining us for our study of 1 Corinthians. We hope you enjoyed the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. Amen. It's good to see you. Uh, please take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll be back in our great study of this wonderful letter, uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And really today we arrive at the, the mega chapter of the entire book. This is where Paul's kind of been heading and trending the entire time. And now it culminates here in chapter 15. And the, then 16, he's tidying up some things. And now we dive into, we're going to spend the next few weeks on this amazing chapter. And really what we're going to be learning today from the beginning of verses 1 through 11 is how Paul wants the Corinthians to do something particular and to acknowledge and to feel something. And the same for us. He wants us to be about keeping the main thing the main thing. And since these words come to us in the very authority and power of, of King Jesus himself, let's stand together in the order of reading of Christ's word. And we'll begin in verse 11. And the Spirit says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles." unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Let's pray. Holy Father, now, would you by your spirit and by the living word, by Christ himself, would you help us to remember the gospel, where we stand, what we've received, how we are being saved, and would you let us now, by your grace and by your power, would you help us to hold fast and recognize what is of first importance in our lives. Be honored, King Jesus, and do only what you can do. Would you even, by your Spirit, draw some to new life, to eternal life, to faith and forgiveness in you? And it's in your mighty name we pray, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I'm not afraid to say, and I'm, I'm sure some of you won't agree with this or think this is so weird. Uh, I'm not afraid to admit that I actually do like going to the grocery store. I think it's an adventure. 
I think, especially if you bring your kids, it's a wild adventure. And it gives this kind of sense of accomplishment. I have a list. I accomplish the list. It's done. I, I imagine what some guys feel when they go hunting. I feel at the grocery store. I came, I saw, I bought, and I brought home to my wife. But if I do end up going on a sanctioned, it has to be a sanctioned grocery store trip, or I've received orders, very strict rules of engagement, I have a list, go to the store and pick it up. And the orders are always just for my wife. Only get what's on the list. We do not need extra milk. We do not need extra lunch meat. We don't need beef jerky that you think we need. We, we are fine. Never deviate from the list. And lately, I've discovered that now the list, we need some improvements. I need very detailed and specific descriptions of items on the list. Just last weekend, I go to the store, I get the text, I get the list, and I'm getting, okay, strawberries, got it, bananas, they're all super green. I'm getting them anyways, because I don't want to hear, why did you get the bananas? They were all green. I just said get bananas. Okay. Uh, strawberries, not frozen, got them. Okay. And now, the last item on the list, the main item I was supposed to get that really initiated this whole trip to begin with was a box of chicken. And we're looking at it going, a box of chicken? What is that? Instead of texting her and asking, I walk by the rotisserie chickens that are sitting there. They're in the, I look at it and go, well, it's a chicken, a whole chicken. And it's in a tub. It's not really a box. I think that's it. So I grab the tub of chicken, what I think to be a box of chicken. I bring it home. I'm really proud. Got it. I'm unloading all the groceries and we're chit-chatting. I go get one last bag. I come back in and there she is holding the box of chicken and going, what in the world is this? So it's a box of chicken. She goes, no, this is not a box. This is a tub. I wanted a box of chicken. I'm like, I don't know what that is. Like, this looks like a box of chicken to me. I'm bringing it home. She goes, no, I wanted the box of chicken that we've been buying for eight years now. Every month, the box of frozen chicken breasts that we always buy. And I went, oh, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> you, yeah, you wanted that for sure. You want me to go back to the store? No, I'll, I'll figure it out. Okay, cool. And that was the main thing I went for. The, the only, that really initiated the entire grocery trip, and I missed that all up because I just forgot what we actually needed, what she was actually asking. When I think about that over this past week, this isn't just the habit of 21st century busy humans. This is the habit of every human that we forget, we misinterpret, we misunderstand. This is the habit of the Corinthians. Not that they forgot what a box of chicken is, but they were forgetting the main thing the central truth of the universe. They needed to be reminded again of the gospel that Paul preached to them and of what is of first importance. And we too, every Christian of every age and every place and every city, every church, we need to be reminded of what it is to actually live in the gospel of the kingdom. I mean, look at verse 1. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. It's significant that he's reminding Christians of the gospel. When he says it reminds you of the gospel, this is not merely that they are forgetting the facts of the gospel. I don't think our spiritual struggles and weaknesses and how we succumb to temptations is because we forgot, oh, Jesus was crucified. Oh, they used nails. I totally forgot about that. Oh, I, I forgot that Jesus died on a Roman cross on a place called the skull. Okay, now, now I'm freed from my pornography. 
th- that's not how this works. We typically don't need a refresher on history. Like the Corinthians, we need to remember the relevance, the ever-present power, and the life-altering persistence of us being crucified with Christ and of us being raised with Christ and us being seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We need to be reminded that the gospel is not just a dot on the Bible timeline. The gospel isn't contained just to the moment of your conversion, when you were born again, that, that first explosion of faith. Guys, if we limit our understanding of the gospel, we end up cutting ourselves off from the industrial strength power of the gospel that is available to us in King Jesus. What Paul is telling the Corinthians, and what we need to be reminded of is this, is that we must grasp the A to Z of the gospel. We must grasp the A to Z nature of the gospel. Look look at verse 1 again. Now, I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. Now, look at how he continues to talk about the gospel, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So every Christian here needs to answer this question. And I think everybody needs to answer this question. Especially if you're not a Christian, you're wondering, you may be wondering about this, what I'm about to throw out. What on earth does the death of a man from Israel in the first century have to do with my life today? Why does this matter? This is a very significant question. The Bible would say everything has everything to do with your life. Because Jesus, here's why, because Jesus is fully God. It matters. It was the death of the Son of God to pay for our sins. If Jesus was just a good teacher, it doesn't matter at all. The death of Jesus, if he's just a good teacher, it doesn't matter any more than Plato's death to you or me. And I bet that's probably the first time you've ever thought about Plato's death. But because Jesus is the Son of God, eternal God himself, it matters. And because Jesus is, meaning he's alive, that he rose from the dead, that he's alive right now, it matters. Because if Jesus is just a pile of bone dust, and then that he didn't appear to Paul, like this book says, that he didn't appear to all the apostles, that he didn't appear to more than 500 at once, and that he didn't ascend into heaven, and then he isn't returning, then his death doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It's significant. This book is full of garbage, and we should just close it up, and Christians are the biggest morons on the planet. But since Jesus is, present tense, he's doing something right now, reigning on the throne, sustaining the universe by the word of his power, being the advocate and the mediator and the high priest for all of his people. Now everything changes. What we do changes. It's not all about us. It's all for him. What we don't do changes. It's now for him. What we hope in changes. Now it's it's him. How we mature in the faith changes. It's him. How we love each other changes. It's him. Our, Our confidence changes. It's him. You see, right now, it's him. 
Jesus is the gospel. I mean, did you see what the gospel is in the passage when we read it? We usually think of the gospel as truth and statements, and yes, it's what Jesus has done. Verses three and four, he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, but it's who Jesus is and what he's done. It's not the verses. It's not the words. One of the tragic things about the Bible Belt is that people have a Christianity that is a subscription to propositional truth statements and sentences and no real connection to Jesus himself, to the Savior. We cannot reduce the gospel and we cannot reduce Christianity down to sentences and statements of truth, though those matter. But sentences did not die in your place. Sentences do not sit on the throne. There is a man from Galilee reigning as our Galilean and galactic emperor who is our savior and friend and our good shepherd. And now we hear his voice and follow him in the word. And he's alive right this second. We must see the entire Christian life, the A to Z of the gospel, as living and active right now. We live the entire Christian life from the power of Jesus from the man, the God-man, the Son of God, an actual interaction and union and living with him, united to Jesus. This is the A to Z nature of the gospel. It's all in life. Paul, what he's doing with these words, which you've received, I mean, you can really hear the entire Christian life in verse 1 and 2. I mean, look at it. Look at it. I, the word, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. I, what? Preach to you. So someone told you the gospel. You heard a preacher, you were evangelized. Now what happens? You received it. You believe. That's faith. Now what? Would you stand? This is your present reality right now. If you're a Christian, you stand in the gospel. And what what else? And by which you're being saved. You're, You're being sanctified. You're being cleansed. You're being matured by the gospel. There is kind of a finality and a final finality to the gospel. It is finished. We're still in the lifeboat, and we're headed to glory with him. We're in the process of being saved still. Not that we can fall back out of salvation, but we're, we're trending towards that final salvation, that day of redemption. It's all of life. So we see this multi-use, multi-purpose nature of the gospel. You know those multi-use products that get pitched on TV and uh, pop-up ads, all that kind of stuff? It chops, it dices, it mints. It minces. It shorts your, sorts your change. It'll walk your dog for you. I mean, you hear all these, you're like, okay, that's all garbage. It's all made of some cheap old plastic. I mean, use it once, it's going to break. And really, I mean, think about our phones. Our, our phones are amazing. This thing is multi-use, multi-purpose. It can do a wild amount of things. It can email. It can text. Pictures. Calendars film nice videos, GPS, search the internet in seconds. You having some kind of disagreement about who was in what movie? We could settle this right now. Boom, boom, boom. Tom Hanks, done. You can stream music instantly. You don't know a song? You can get an app and hold it up. It'll listen to the music and go, that's this song. Oh, okay, cool. You can order food. You can buy a toaster on Amazon right now. Not, not right, don't do it right now, but you could buy one when you get home. And, if, uh, and it makes phone calls. 
It's amazing. The, the phone, it, but it didn't start out this way, did it? It started out with Alexander Graham Bell and his buddy and a wire between a wall. And now we have this amazing transformation. The phone matured. But that's not how the gospel is. At day one of your conversion, you are equipped with all of that you need for life and godliness. You aren't given a primitive version of Christianity and the Spirit says, eh, we'll kind of upgrade you over time. We'll see how you handle this. No, Christ dwells in us, the hope of glory. No Christian is shortchanged from full-on, high-octane Christianity with Christ. What we need and what Paul is doing with the Corinthians, he's helping us see how the gospel, how Jesus himself, his grace, his cross, his resurrection is vital to every second of the Christian life, what you've heard. So what about this message that you heard that first day of new birth? You received it, well, now what? You move on to other things and you go deeper. No, no, no. That's what you stand on. No, it's how you're being saved. It's what you hold fast to till the end. Unless you believed in vain. Look at verse 2. Hold fast to the word I preached to you, hearkening all the way back to the very beginning of verse 1. Why? Unless you believed in vain. What does that mean? That's a scary little phrase. Unless you believed in vain. Other translations take this as, unless you didn't believe all the way through. It means you didn't believe thoroughly. It means really, another way to say it would be, it means you only believed once. Friends, the gospel is not something you can only believe once. You can acknowledge the truth once. You can acknowledge, yeah, I'm a bad person, and yes, okay, I see Jesus died and rose again. Okay, yeah, I, I, I acknowledge that's true. But that is not faith and repentance and new life. Giving Jesus a tip of the hat doesn't mean you've been crucified with him. To believe the gospel only once is to have never believed it at all. What Paul is showing the Corinthians is how the gospel is for all of life and in all of life. What you've received and how you stand and how you are being saved. Christ alone. Usually we think about the gospel as just kind of the starting point. Christ died for our sins and rose again. That's the beginning. No, it's the whole thing. It's not just the diving board into Christianity. The gospel is also the water. It's the entire pool. It's the plaster. It's the filtration system. It's the chlorine. It's the goggles. It's the flippers. It's the Nerf ball. It's the oxygen in your lungs. It's the sunshine. It is the entire experience of the Christian life, what you've received and where you stand and how you are being saved. The gospel is not done with you yet. It is finished. He paid for your sins, but now you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now you're being strengthened, and now you're being transformed into the image of his son. And why does this matter? Why does verse 1 and 2 matter? If we don't grasp the A to Z of the gospel and we only view it as the ABCs, kind of the beginning stuff, and now I'm going to move on to other things, if we don't see it as the common denominator and power from A to Z, if you only keep it at ABC, then you will hold 
open auditions for the D to Z of your life. And you will fill it with all kinds of functional saviors that will destroy you, let you down, disappoint you, and crush you. You'll forget the power of the message you received. And then you'll look to something else. You'll try to find comfort or or identity and appearance or in achievements other than the message you've received. Christ died for my sins and rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. You'll forget how you stand with Christ and you'll try and make yourself great and assure yourself in that you stand because of how awesome you are and how you're not as sinful as other people and that's why you stand and that's why you're going to make it to heaven. You'll forget how you're actually being saved, that it's not by works, that it's by grace through faith alone and that no one can boast. You might become like the Galatians who they started with grace, but now they're trying to finish with works. Or you might become like the Corinthians right here and disconnect the truth of the gospel from everyday life and wade into all kinds of sin and not even recognize it. Excusing sexual immorality, chapter 5. Having conflicts with brothers and sisters in Christ to the degree that they're going to court eating at idols' temples and not even being concerned about satanic activities and hurting brothers and sisters in Christ who used to be in those temples, abusing the Lord's Supper, getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. See, all of these issues, chapter 1 through 14, they've all been leading up to 15. How does 15 begin? After Paul discusses all these things, he now says, now I want to remind you of the gospel. He didn't say, now I want you guys to start a purification of the Lord's Supper ministry. Now, I want you to start an internal uh, Judge Judy ministry in the church. Now, I want you to start a kind of peacemaking reconciliation. Let's have a church discipline council meeting in the church. He doesn't do any of those things. Rather, he says, I want to remind you of the gospel. When you limit the scope of the gospel in your life, you maximize the subtleties of indwelling sin in your life. When you limit the scope of the gospel, you maximize the subtleties of indwelling sin in your life. So we must hold fast to it because we are tempted to go grab onto something else. We are tempted to go find comfort and all the things that moth and rust will destroy. We're tempted to look at ourselves for comfort and our achievements. So are you holding fast to the message of the gospel? Is it the pattern of your life, Christ crucified? Is it the power of your life? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Well, maybe I need to ask, do you you know if you've received it? It's the first, in verse 1, which you've received. So have you received it? Have you believed in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? the payment of your sins on his cross and his resurrection for new life, that by faith, just by simple faith in him, that you can be forgiven and freed. And maybe you need to look to him today and be saved from your sins. So do you know where you stand? Non-Christian, Christian, where do you stand? Are you on the solid rock? Or are you on shifting sand? Do you know how you're being saved? Because one of the greatest dangers in our area, 
is that we can acknowledge Jesus, but at the same time, we're also kind of window shopping for functional saviors. Our own goodness, our own achievements. And we have morally acceptable things that we acknowledge. Oh, that's a good thing. That's kind of my hope and my confidence. Listen, morally acceptable false gospels are still damnable and destructive to your life. What God is inviting us to do in this passage is to see the pervasive nature of the gospel. And this next part, we must grasp how vital it is to our own personal lives, what must happen, and to our church, is that once we see the A to Z, now we must also protect the of first importance nature of the gospel. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you, I love this phrase, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. What Scriptures? He's not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those have not been written down yet when Paul's writing this. He's talking about the Old Testament. That the Old Testament is the evangelist of Christ. In accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So the entire witness of the Old Testament is pointing to the death burial, and resurrection of King Jesus. So what is the number one truth to Paul? What's the leading truth in the Bible? What does the Bible say is of first importance? And this isn't just according to Paul. This is God's word. This is according to God himself. The truth that is of first importance, never to play second chair in the local church or in the life of a Christian, is that Christ died for your sins that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This right here, this section, this sentence is the most memorable and portable definition of the gospel in the whole Bible. It just doesn't get any clearer than right here. This is the supersonic message of Christianity, of the whole Bible. This is teaching us right now what's of utmost importance and what everyone in this room needs to hear. We all came in thinking we needed to hear other things. We wake up every day thinking we need to hear other things. Paul, Jesus, the Spirit, the Father, right now is testifying to us the most important message you need to hear today, this moment, this, these seconds, is that Christ died for your sins paid them in full. He rose again for you. In our place, he died. For our sins, he died. You've got to slow down and stare into the mega reality of these words. Christ died for our sins. The eternal son of God died for your sins. He was executed for what he did not do, but for, but for what you did. Crucified for nothing he did, but for what you did. He had God's wrath. I mean, you can talk about the pain and the horror of being crucified, but we can't, the Bible cannot even give us full expression of our limited language of what was also happening at the cross, that God's wrath 
was roaring and breaking and swelling and landing on Jesus in full. What would have taken an eternity for you and I to sit under the wrath of God, Jesus accomplishes on the cross. So we could be forgiven. So we could be freed. So we could be delivered from the wrath of God to come. And he rose again. He refused to remain a corpse. And why? Do you ever sit and think about that? Why? Why did Jesus do this? Why does Christianity communicate this? Why is Christianity the only religion that teaches this? I mean, we sang amazing love. How can it be? Why would the Father do this? Why would he put his son on that cross in our place? And this, it's not like this was out of Jesus' control. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own authority. I can call down angels right now, and they would just totally destroy everyone in this area. So why? Because of his great grace and mercy and love towards you. That's it given freely to you by faith alone. This is glorious. It is never because you were good enough. It is not that you were moral enough, you were smart enough. None of us have anything within us that will incite God's attention to us and God to go, whoa, I better give them grace. It does not exist. Nothing in us worthy to get God's attention, only that God is a gracious God, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. This is Christianity. And every time I hear that gospel, I mean, it's like fresh, squeezed truth to my heart. It's like I want to become super charismatic all of a sudden. Because I believe and I want to feel that I've been saved. And this is the greatest tragedy in the Bible Belt. We can acknowledge the truth of the gospel and yet not experientially feel the truths of the gospel. We can see that people meet Jesus, like Thomas, who meets the resurrected Lord, and he says, my Lord and my God. And we hear that and go, that was good theology. He said, theos. He called Jesus the theos. He called him God. Yes, hallelujah. But we too should yell, my Lord and my God, when we read, when we sing, when we pray, that we are actually walking with Jesus, not sentences. The gospel, Jesus himself, will always be the most important message you need to hear. It is never irrelevant. You never grow past it. There is no other message in the universe, nothing that has been said, and nothing that will ever be uttered that will bring you more comfort than Christ crucified, risen from the dead. There is no other teaching in the universe that will encourage you more that Christ died for that sin, this sin, that one, paid in full and rose again from the dead. There's no other teaching that will compel you more, no, that, none that will correct you more than the gospel of grace. And we as a church, we too must protect the first importance of the gospel. Continue to give it priority because it is scary how easy it is for Christians and for churches to still keep the gospel important. But it's not first. It's second or third. When churches split over 
doctrinal disagreements that are not about Christ crucified and risen from the dead and central to the gospel. Disagreements over spiritual gifts, over modes of baptism, over Reformed theology, over different positions of the end times. Is there a rapture? Is there not? Will there be a literal thousand-year kingdom? Or are we kind of in it now and that's what's occurring? Over opinions and preferences and traditions. Really a disagreement over anything. That's why we as a church and we as a people must continue to say, no, this is what is of first importance. Christ crucified for our sins and raised again from the dead. The Corinthians were dividing over all these. They were dividing over their favorite preachers and teachers. I like Apollos. I like Paul. You like Paul? I like Peter better. And this happens today. I'm more of a MacArthur guy. I'm more of a Piper guy. I'm more of a Chandler guy. And Paul would sit back and go, you need to be a Jesus guy. I'm a, he is of first importance. You know the gospel is of first importance to you when you want to be unified with other Christians more than you want to be divided with them. You know the gospel is of first importance to you when you want people to be encouraged by Christ and not discouraged by their own shortcomings. You know the gospel is of first importance to you when you recognize your own personal unworthiness and you rejoice in Jesus' goodness towards you. You know the gospel is of first importance to you when you want others to know that they can be saved by Jesus. You know the gospel is of first importance to you by how often you think about the gospel, how often you talk about the gospel, how often you rejoice in the gospel, how often you live from the gospel, and how often you live for the gospel. We must protect the integrity and the gospel's priority in the church because it does not take long for something else to become that new of first importance. And I'm no math wizard, but as far as I can tell, you can only have one first importance regardless of what Little League trophies say. If it's not, well, here's, what we just, well, here's what we must do. If it's not essential to the gospel here at the church, we don't argue about it. We can discuss it and dialogue about it, but we're not getting angry and argue. We don't divide over it. We don't allow ourselves to get irritated by it. We just don't go there. I know there's people all across our church, members all across our church, who have different beliefs about the end times, have different beliefs about the gifts, have different beliefs about baptism. But yet, these things, they're not bigger than Jesus. And they don't compromise that Christ died for our sins and rose again from the dead. Anything that does compromise that, at the Trinity, the inspiration of Scripture, now we've got different issues. But these things bring us together. We must publicly, together, in the church, and privately together in our own lives and in groups, resolve to keep the main thing the main thing. This is why the mission of our church is making disciples and making much of Jesus. We're not about waving any other banner, any other flag. This is why we want to see the real gospel, this gospel, become recognizable in Tomball and beyond, because this is what is of first importance. We must resolve again to be an of first importance church, to be an of first importance people, that it's all about Jesus. Every ministry, every message, every time we gather, it's all about Him. Spiritual gifts are not of first importance. 
What's amazing is that what did he just finish talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 14? Spiritual gifts. And now he says, now I want to remind you what's of, of first importance. Because they were elevating the gifts too high. Jesus is of first importance. I've, I've never had a discussion with Christians or seen a debate with Christians where they're arguing over these things and then people walk away going, man, hallelujah, that was awesome. I loved, I loved yelling together about the spiritual gifts. No way. Or I loved yelling about election and predestination. Oh, that was a blast. Jesus said, the world will know you are my disciples. Did he say, by the way, you antagonize one another? The way you argue with each other? And listen, I love doctrine. I think it's huge. I think it's so important. And I used to be just like that. I was more passionate about Reformed theology and different kinds of doctrines than I was about brothers and sisters in Christ, Christians. That, yeah, okay, we kind of disagreed about some of these things. And even some people at the church where I grew up, they're going, are those people saved? I remember thinking, this is a really big problem. They believe in Jesus, right? This is what is of first importance. We're going to be worshiping Jesus forever. We're going to be enjoying Jesus forever, not doctrine forever. Not our view of election or not our view of tongues and prophecy. Guys, we follow a Nazarene who refused to stay a corpse. I think a resurrected man deserves our full attention and our first importance attention. And this is the wild message of Christianity, that we actually do believe in a man who rose again from the dead. This is what's compelling to the world. This is what draws us in. This is why the early church was so powerful. They were powerful not because everyone noted how much they debated theology. They were not powerful because everyone noted, man, they had some awesome disagreements, and they really clarified their positions, some theological notes. No, they were so powerful because they realized they preach and evangelize about a Galilean who's not dead anymore. This is what sets us apart. And in our day and age, we just do not have the, we don't have the time. We don't have the time to draw party lines across denominations and not talk to each other and not associate with one another. In our day and in our time, it is time for us to come together around what is of first importance. Don't unite around sin. I had someone asked me in between services, well, what about, you know, X denomination? They're now saying maybe Jesus didn't rise from the dead or, you know, maybe they, they're allowing these uh, ordaining gay bishops and things like that. Are we okay with that? We say, no, no, no. We would say those things are a comp- compromise of Scripture and are sinful. So the things that are not sinful, like a disagreement about a doctrine or something like that, we can unite, but not over things that are sinful because Christ died for our sins, so we don't treat them lightly. And we get this new perspective. When we see the of first importance nature of the gospel, then something changes. When you see his empty tomb and you see the cross, you get a new perspective, and now you live with a new power of the gospel. Once you see the A to Z, you see it's of first importance that it's Christ alone. Now you get a new perspective, a new power to live from. And verses 6 through 11, what's happening here, Paul is reminding them of, all the, of some of the people Jesus appeared to before he ascended back into heaven. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. He, he appeared to James, his brother. He appeared to all the apostles. Then he appeared to 500 all at once. Some people, like, and I think it's okay to look at these and go, Paul's giving proofs of the resurrection to unbelievers. I just don't think that's true. He's encouraging believers. He's encouraging the Corinthians that Jesus did rise again. And we're going to see next week how they're kind of messing this up. 
But unbelievers can read this, and maybe you're an unbeliever here, and you're reading that, and you're going, not so. That doesn't convince me. It's in the Bible. We have to remember that apart from the Spirit of God, we can tell someone these things, but they would just go, so what? It's in your book. Of course you believe that. What we need is the Spirit of God. So we testify to Christ. And look what Paul says. He gets this new perspective, and this, he gives us insight to this new power. He appeared to James, all the apostles, verse 7, now verse 8. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. What is Paul saying? Then this phrase, look at it. As to one untimely born. That phrase is wild. It carries a meaning across Greek that's amazing. Shocking. It can mean anything from an aborted baby to a miscarriage to a stillborn. And it's used kind of on the street and in slang to mean a monster or freak. So why is Paul using this towards himself? He's saying, and me, the most unlikely candidate, the most seemingly most impossible guy to receive the gospel and to stand in the gospel and to be saved by the gospel, he appeared to me. Because look at what he says, why? Why is he the one untimely born? Why is he this monster, this freak? Verse 9, for I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. He triples down on this. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. Because I hated Jesus. I hated Christians. I wanted to stamp the followers of the way out of the Roman Empire. And what a reminder for us today from Paul to never give up on anyone. I'm one untimely born. You got to think the thief on the cross, the guy who died right next to Jesus, you got to know probably his entire family had no idea what happened to him moments before he died. We don't give up on anyone. Paul says, I persecuted the church of God. But look at verse 10. Even though I persecuted the church of God, but, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I was a persecutor of the church, but by God's grace, I'm here. But by God's grace, I'm an apostle. But by God's grace, I heard, I received, I stand, and I'm being saved. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And he's showing us your past. You must look at it with a new perspective. By the grace of God, you are what you are. Grace steamrolls your sin. His grace overwhelms our past. Even as Spurgeon says, if your sins were to cover up to the highest mountain, Jesus' blood, like Noah's flood, covers them all and gives you great pardon. His grace overwhelms our past and it fills our present and gives us a brilliant future. I love how Paul mentions this again in 1 Timothy when he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly what? I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. I love how the Bible never holds back. It always presses in, always presses into reality. But I received mercy. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed. 
overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What? Now he's getting into, let me tell you what's of first importance. This deserves full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The gospel, Christ alone, can give this perspective. Disagreeing over spiritual gifts or the rapture does not awaken us to glory. It does not incite us to say, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, be glory forever and ever. Amen. The gospel of grace shows us power for life. This is why Paul also says, I worked harder than any of the other apostles. He's not slamming them. He's just saying, you guys know how difficult my ministry was. I traveled more than any of them, persecuted more than any of them. And yet it was not I, he says. It wasn't me, but it was the grace of God with me. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and it's the grace of God that's with me today, carrying me along. It's the grace that I've received. It's the grace that I stand in, and it's the grace by which I am being saved. Grace is our new perspective. The grace of God is what's powering us. The grace of God is what motivates us. The gospel gives us new categories for life. You are here today not because of anything you have done, but because of the grace of God. You are what you are. You see, the gospel is for all of life. It's for A to Z. It's of first importance. And this is way more vital than some silly box of chicken. And we can't get distracted from this message. We can't assume this message. Let's keep the main thing as the main thing. Christ himself. And Christ be praised. Let's pray.